Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, October 5th, 2023. I am Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. We'll have Amrith Ramkumar from the Wall Street Journal joining us shortly. But for now, back from the woods, his cave for nine days, and he brought a little bit, a little treat back with him on his face, is Mike Casey of TigerCon. Hey, Mike. Hello, Mr. Angle. This is my deep woods look. And I just want to say, if you keep making ageist comments about me on LinkedIn, we're going to have to send you to sensitivity training. I'm just letting you know that you're you're teetering on the edge of an intervention. I'm just trying to keep you sharp before you start <clears throat> to lose your wits. <laughs> and all seriousness, I want to congratulate you on your recent promotion, Mr. Angle. Uh, I'm Thanks. glad you're still able to um, dwell amongst the people and do this show now that you're becoming a very important person. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Well, the podcasts aren't going anywhere. This is sticking around. Fact of this is sticking around. Mike, take a quick minute to tell the folks about your your last couple of weeks as you embarked on a recharge mission. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I just did two weeks um, off in a remote uh, lake house in a um, in the northern Great Lakes. And I was with complete without work. So I'm going to be... Um, talking about a mini sabbatical user's manual on LinkedIn as uh, partly as a result of the inspiration I got from you, John. So thanks for that contribution. Yeah. Well, apparently they don't sell uh, razors in Michigan. So um, <laughs> glad to have you back. You look recharged. You look great. We do want to thank all of our listeners for joining us every week. And please recommend those stories at this week in clean tech at tigercom.us. And we'll have that link in the episode description as well. Okay, Mike, recharged. Kick us off with your first one. Let's see. Let's see how much of a boost you bring. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do a little something different this week. Um, we're going to count two stories as one for our first story because they're on the same topic, each covering a different poll. The first is from CNET's John Reed entitled Renewable Energy is Reckoning with its Perception in Rural America. It's about a poll that our firm and our friends at Embold Research presented on stage last month at RE+. And the companion piece, if you will, from Washington Post, three writers there entitled Americans Don't Hate Living near solar and wind farms as much as you might think. John, as you might expect, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I'm going to have you go first. Yeah, this is your favorite topic. Um, I do think both of these stories emphasize how important it is for developers, asset owners, people in our space to improve their community engagement tactics. So at a high level, the Washington Post University of Maryland poll found that three quarters of all Americans say they would be comfortable living near solar farms while nearly seven in 10 report feeling the same about wind turbines. That's great. Um, but the research from your firm, Mike, is really interesting because it clearly points to ongoing skepticism, finding a, a majority of rural residents think renewable energy projects will benefit 
other communities? So that's kind of a different question, but an important one still. But this also clearly shouldn't lead to complacency within the industry. It only takes a small vocal majority to totally tank projects or delay them beyond the point of it penciling. And an interesting story I do want to point out that we reported on at Renewable Energy World this week is Transact, the software permitting um, provider, launched a new AI tool that's aiming to track and, and measure county by county sentiment towards solar and feed project developers in sort of real time and alert them to changes. I thought that was incredibly timely and, and a really interesting effort on their part. Yeah, so community acceptance is the industry's growing multi-billion dollar problem. And the, there's good news. Both of these polls have <clears throat> found that despite what fossil fuel bros like Robert Bryce want you to think, Americans generally favor re renewable energy even near them. Note that in 2019, the Berkeley National Labs poll of people who live right next to wind farms, three miles, one mile, a half mile radius, it found that within people who live within a half mile radius, 51% had a very positive or positive experience. <clears throat> and what renewable energy offers rural communities? Jobs, lower energy prices, and tax revenue to address aging infrastructure is what rural Americans say they want for them and their communities. The challenge and the opportunity is finding ways to better present this in ways that they find credible. The stark underinvestment in community engagement by the industry to date is putting projects in jeopardy and it's enabling loud, nimby minorities to kill job-creating clean energy, and that has got to change. I'll just say this, while the Post poll is encouraging, and I'm glad they asked Americans what they thought, I am a bit mystified why they included the views of suburban and urban Americans in what's really a a rural American issue. And for goodness sakes, I wish they would just use the headline they're using in the search tab as opposed to the, the one they've got displayed because it, it's not accurate. And it makes them sound like they're in eighth grade wanting to sit at the cool kids lunch table. So with that, I'm going to um, ask you, Mr. Engel, what is story number two? Yeah, this one's from Vox. The U.S. power grid quietly survived record summer heat waves without outages. Mike, what'd you think? So, you know, when you start working in storage, utility sales storage, you realize um, we have a, a confluence of factors here. Aging infrastructure, increased heat that's driving increased demand. And black, the threat of blackouts is not just the threat of serious economic disruption. It's actually a serious health threat. When you're, as we all know, John, when we were last in Las Vegas last month, it, it's mm. these communities are not habitable three, four months of the year without air conditioning. And we're basically building up an increased chance of dangerous blackouts if we don't get storage right at scale. The good news is solar and wind are both um, helping alleviate these grid challenges for the short term, but we really need to get the ideology over reality crowd in American public decision-making aligned with needs as opposed to just rhetoric and get this situation handled. John, what do you think? Yeah, as noted in the headline, this is a survival story, not a success story. So just because we didn't have blackouts doesn't mean we kind of you know won the race here. This is one of the hottest summers ever. And while it's the main charge of utilities to keep the lights on, 
a, you know, a critical safety role, as you mentioned, we have to come to grips with the fact that these prolonged extreme weather events aren't going away. They aren't one-offs. And until we take seriously these permitting and interconnection reform issues, and especially demand side interventions like virtual power plants, demand response, energy efficiency, all of that kind of stuff, we're going to be up against the brink every summer to come. So I think it, this this really needs to be a reckoning for the broader energy industry. This is not just on utilities. We we really need to come together on this. Mike, what's our third one? Uh, George Steer with from the Financial Times reported renewable energy stocks hit hard by higher interest rates. Uh, John, what do you think? Yeah, this is interesting. So the inflation wave and rising interest rates have caused the S&P Global Clean Energy Index stock to drop 20.2% over the past two months. Oil and gas heavy in the S&P 500 up 6%. So renewables projects have relatively high upfront capital expenditures, low operating expenditures, since they don't require costly fuel stocks. So that makes higher interest rates a challenge to get projects off the ground. And we're seeing this impact portfolios and pipelines immediately. And you're, you heard that chatter, and I talked about it in the last episode of Factor This with Scott Wider from, from Standard Solar at RE+, that people are making decisions based on these macroeconomic trends. And just last week, NextEra, the largest clean energy developer in the world, their unregulated renewables group cut growth guidance, suffered a downgrade from analysts, there's a lot of chatter internally about what that means for that organization. So th- it is important to be talking about this and um, tough, immediate times, not necessarily a long-term picture. Mike, what did you think? So I think this is where collective amnesia doesn't really work in our country's long-term favor. I, <clears throat> let's just take a, a step back for a second and remember that the pandemic was a massive disruption to this economy. And now that we've got our masks off, it's easy to forget that the Fed and the country as a whole are really having to work hard to put America back to a post-pandemic economic normal, whatever that might be. And the energy transition is, it's drawing a lot of needed investment, public and private, but we need a better economic environment to ensure the momentum that will, that will build in favorable returns. So this trend keeps going. And I, I do note, I think, as you alluded to, John, some traders are, are saying that renewable energy business models, they're really not cut out for a high inflation, high interest rate environment. I, I'm not an economist, but I do think that that's selling our sector short. I, there is a need, however, for much better public case making to the public on behalf of our companies. I think just across the board, and if I had my way, both trade association budgets would be quadrupled tomorrow morning for exactly this purpose. But I'm confident there's a path forward here. It just needs to be found and found soon. John, what's our fourth story? Yeah, I'm going to let you just weigh in on this one, Mike, so we can get to Amrith quicker. But um, this one's from MIT Tech Review titled, Underground Thermal Energy Networks Are Becoming Crucial to the U.S.'s Energy Future. What'd you take away? So we got 13 states right now that are planning to use underground thermal energy networks for their commercial and residential building stock um, to cut carbon pollution. The first one is going to be coming online um, next month in Massachusetts. Most of the other states are waiting for their pilot projects. Um, heating and cooling buildings produces a lot of carbon pollution. And though we're still in the early days, the good news is that <clears throat> carbon footprint means we can save a lot if we get energy efficiency right. It's been the long neglected uh, part of our energy mix, and we need to get it right. Our fifth story is from the Wall Street Journal's Amrith Ram Kumar. It's called The Secret Behind the First $1 Billion Green Hydrogen Startup. John, what'd you think? 
Yeah, this is about electric hydrogen. So they just closed another uh, financing round that I think brings their total haul to somewhere around 600 million valued at a billion dollars. Um, Amrith can talk a little bit more about you know, the, the company itself. But the way I understand it is electric hydrogen is trying to strike at the, the industrial level, 100 megawatt scale electrolyzers and, and target where most of us believe green hydrogen is most applicable you know, soonest instead of trying to do everything that it possibly could. But I'll let Amrith weigh in there. Amrith, welcome. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Amrith, um, for people who haven't read the story yet, what's the single biggest takeaway you think that you want them to know? That a startup led by a former first solar executive says it has slashed the cost of green hydrogen, uh, which opens up a ton of potential applications and potentially makes this holy grail clean energy energy technology real after decades of it not being real and more hypothetical. And Amrith, what did you take away from your conversations uh, with the electric hydrogen folks as they are obviously having to address the concerns from the industry that are has its share of skeptics about green hydrogen's role, as you mentioned, they believe they can be the ones to sort of break through that that barrier that has has um, stood between green hydrogen and the commercial market. Do, do they kind of have that secret, to your point, secret proposition of what they'll do differently? Yeah, it was interesting. They were very sensitive about their IP, right? So with an electrolyzer, it all comes down to that stack and that plate design. And basically, they say they've cracked that code by starting from scratch and making everything in-house. That's sort of the Tesla model for this stuff. So that was really interesting. And the point you mentioned earlier, I think, is at the heart of all of this. Uh, they're a laser focused on green hydrogen projects at scale using renewables in the U.S. And so that's kind of been their mission from day one. And then they tested these things at a small scale and they tested thousands of prototypes. Then now they're at commercial scale and they're testing hundreds of those. Then they're trying to open a gigafactory. So no one really knows, right, if this stuff is going to work until it's deployed. But if their lab results are indicative of what they'll get at commercial scale, that's a game changer. And you mentioned who invested. I mean, it's a who's who of big industrial companies that need green hydrogen to decarbonize. United Airlines, BP, Fortescue, a big iron ore producer. If you go further down, Amazon, Microsoft, Honeywell, uh, Rio Tinto. Uh, it's pretty rare to get that many big blue chip industrial companies invested in a startup, especially in this market environment that you guys were just talking about. So we'll see. Big companies seem to be buying in, but the, it'll be a few years before we know if, if this actually works at scale. But their lab results certainly are promising. Amrith, does the this really significant capitalization of this green hydrogen play, does it alter the nature of the race between green hydrogen and thermal storage for hard-to-abate industries like this? That's interesting. I don't know about that. I think it just brings green hydrogen closer to reality. Uh, and I think it makes the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act that much more compelling because you could potentially get really cheap or almost free green hydrogen, which is what electric hydrogen is saying. And that becomes compelling when you pit it against natural gas. Uh, it'll still take a while and the green hydrogen volumes are still going to be pretty limited. So I think from people I talk to, you still need a ton of thermal storage, battery storage, as much energy storage as you can get. But if you can make green hydrogen, then yeah, I think it becomes a viable storage 
and clean energy carrier and all the things people talk about and sort of salivate over in the sector become possibilities and more realistic. And I think that's why some people are really excited about it at, at this moment. I do think the <laughs> timing ahead of the hydrogen hub funding and then the tax credit rules uh, is really interesting. Like hydrogen is clearly having a moment. And if this company is able to capitalize, they could really emerge as a winner here. So we'll just have to see. And John, we are just about out of time. I want to thank our awesome producer, Brian Mendez, and to Claire Quirin and Alex Peterson for helping us find this week's stories. Yeah, and thanks to Amrith for joining us this week on uh, This Week in Clean Tech. Please subscribe, give us that feedback, and share story recommendations. And you can also read all of the articles that we discussed this week, including Amrith's, by clicking the links in the episode description. Make sure you check out Monday's episode of Factor This. We're talking about a proposed tax equity change, Mike, that some analysts are calling potentially dire to the clean energy industry based on the regulatory proceedings right now. So you won't want to miss that one. All right, Mike, we'll see you next week. See you, my friend. And uh, listeners, we'll have more to say about uh, public opinion and about mini sabbaticals on LinkedIn. We'll see you there. Take care. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.